Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> when we hear something from them and they announce that they're going forward with the case, we're, it's going to be much further. It'll suddenly be way further along than everybody realizes. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be going right to trial. Uh, but uh, be because there could be a motion to dismiss, that motion to dismiss could get appealed. Like things could get very messy, but um, but it's going to be a lot further along than people realize at that point. That's that's probably the biggest takeaway for people that that may not. It's something that's kind of behind the scenes that people probably don't know. Faithful Politics listeners and viewers, if you're watching on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and unfortunately, Josh is not with us this week. Um, he is currently on duty, sitting on a high, he's currently on jury duty, actually, sitting on a high-profile case in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, but in his place, <laughs> we have back with us um, Karina Lane, uh, the constitutional professor extraordinaire um, and former prosecutor, and joining us this week to talk about um, all kinds of things, the answer to life, universe, and everything, is former assistant attorney general for New York State uh, and current managing partner of Main Street Law, Tristan Snell. So thanks, Tristan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Did I say your last name right? Snell? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. It's yeah. Pr- pronouncing names are very important on the show. Um, yeah. It's it's, start. It's, it's kind of it's kind of what we're known for. We're we're, we're known for pronouncing names correctly. Hey, that's you gotta that's have the, a core competency. So yeah, it, is, it is a core competency. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So. Yeah. So um. So yeah. So Tristan, we we um are glad you're here, and we we want to talk to you kind of about a whole range of things primarily um trump and all things related um it's it's actually been a minute since we've had an episode that's sort of focused on trump which seems kind of weird but you know this is this is the new uh post-trump life we live in and most of it's all biden related so um so with regard to trump i i think just on the on the onset we we want to kind of talk to you a little bit about a recent article literally like you just posted um, on this Mercanish page <laughs> about, about uh, unpacking the civil case that may destroy the Trump organization. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that, that article? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I worked on civil prosecutions when I was at the New York AG's office. So uh, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, you know, the civil side of prosecution uh, is often poorly understood and I, I don't think ever gets quite enough love. Uh, and that's okay, uh, but okay, it was just a, it, it was just a chance to toot the horn of the civil case, which everybody has forgotten about. Everybody, so mm-hmm. what happened was, everybody will remember that uh, it was big news back in the summer when the New York AG's office announced that it was uh, elevating its uh, probe into the Trump Organization and Donald Trump uh, to a criminal matter. Uh, that happened, I want to say, in July, uh, and. Uh, it might have been even in June. And then it was clear that this was really starting to ramp up. Everybody just assumed that, that it was, uh, with the term elevating, that it was like the, the civil case was turning into a criminal case, like it had leveled, you know, it had leveled up. Um, it hadn't. That's actually not what's happened. It just meant that they've opened a criminal matter. Uh, they're cooperating in that criminal matter with the Manhattan DA's office, which has had the longer standing criminal matter on it. The civil case has still been ongoing. And uh, my goal with the piece was to uh, was to let everybody know about that uh, and also to take an opportunity to do a little bit of a nerdy deep dive into how these civil cases work at the AG's office because it's a unique area of law. Uh, New York has some of these statutes that no other state has quite the same law. And uh, with the Martin Act and this other thing that uh, very few people know about called Executive Law 6312, uh, which is really the main workhorse statute for civil prosecutions by the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, And uh, the the key there is just to not to go on too long about this, but is that the- Please do. Okay, great. So the case is ongoing. I said I was going to nerd out on this. And I actually- Yeah, this is good. 
I think our listeners will be really interested in seeing the difference between yeah. the, the criminal side and the civil side. And, sure. you know, the, there's this presumption that like, oh, you know, go after them criminally. And, um, right. you know, I think you make a really interesting argument that um, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, perhaps both the easier and more satisfying judgment is on the civil side. So um, please do tell. So the easier part is really key because, um, I mean, one thing I probably should have put in the piece but didn't is that, of course, you've got the difference between what the what the burden of proof is in a civil case, which is that you need preponderance of the evidence versus uh, in, a, in a criminal matter where you're looking for beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I actually probably should, should see if I can still put that into the piece. <laughs> I totally forgot to put that in. But that's one layer. The other layer is that fraud in the criminal context or fraud in the civil context at common law uh, involves intent or requires intent and it requires that the defrauded party reasonably relied upon the misrepresentations. Those are both significant hurdles to making a case. Uh, Executive Law 6312 uh, and the Martin Act, which it's, uh, is sort of its sibling statute, dispense with those requirements by statute and say those are not required when the AG is bringing the civil case. Mm. Uh, so that's really critical because proving intent is especially tricky. Obviously, that's what a lot of the criminal case will have to hinge on. And I believe that there's potentially going to be enough evidence to pull that off. Uh, but it's certainly a high bar, and it's meant to be, especially in the criminal context where you're uh, taking away someone's liberty. Uh, the civil case where you're really just taking away someone's money, the bar is lower. Uh, and what we could see there is a case that actually happens faster, uh, has a lower bar to clear by the prosecution. Uh, in this case, it would be the New York AG's office. And that it could result in hundreds of millions of dollars in back taxes, restitution, and penalties being paid by the Trump organization, uh, possibly also by Donald Trump personally in some instances, uh, or other members of his family or organization, and that money being paid to the state of New York, uh, various banks and insurance companies uh, possibly. And all of this hinges around the tax fraud, which we can unpack a bit more. But it could be the net net out of this could be a nine figure uh, you know, hit to the Trumps uh, that, that could come within the next couple of years uh, resulting out of all of this. Uh, and it could be even faster than that. It, it, it depends. The, these court cases, when they're brought by the AG's office, they can go very quickly, but they can also end up getting stuck in the mud with a bunch of other uh, decisions and appeals. You know, we filed the Trump University case, which was also filed under that Executive Law 6312 statute, and we also were taking advantage of that statutory definition of fraud. Uh, we filed that case in August of 2013. Uh, it was on the way to going to trial for possibly a late 2016 or early 2017 trial date when Donald Trump won the election in November 2016, uh, at which point uh, he settled rather than having it go to trial while he was in the White House. Uh, and uh, but it but it was taking that long. In other words, it was it was it, it, it soup to nuts. That case was going to take three and a half years. That's how long it ended up taking. So it. You know, I don't know if it'll necessarily be faster than the criminal case, but it could be, uh, it's really another path at which prosecutors can pursue the wrongdoing that is being alleged. Uh, and for those who believe that there should be criminal or civil consequences for some of the things that, that the Trumps appear to have done tax-wise, uh, this really could be a significant, uh, you know, and I, in my view, really potentially catastrophic economic impact for uh, for the business and for his personal finances. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. 
Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. I have so many questions for you. I will try <laughs> to restrain myself. Yeah. Um, but one is very limited, and that's just, um, I wondered if you'd mention the um, corporate charter implications, yeah. the potential corporate charter implications, yeah. and why um, even those who are corporate law geeks and saying, oh, but there's Delaware, um, why, why that might not even work. Do you want to speak to that? Well, for one thing, most of the corporate charters, you know, well, there's a couple of things is that, uh, you know, A, you can, you can, of course, reincorporate in a different state. Uh, you know, the Trumps seem to have decided that Florida is a good place for them. Uh, you know, the companies that are currently chartered in New York could just get rechartered in Florida, but you still have to have, if you want to do business in New York, you still have to, and anybody who, who runs a small business knows this, you have to be registered as a, uh, the weird terminology, you're registered as a foreign corporation. Uh, so even if you've got a Delaware LLC, but you need to do business in Virginia, you need to be registered as a foreign corporation in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, and so the key is that Donald Trump could recharter all of these corporations and LLCs as Florida entities but if it's a New York building, Trump Tower, uh, 40 Wall Street, uh, the Seven Springs Resort, uh, that's, that some of the tax implications there have been called into question up in Westchester County, north of the city. Uh, it's, it's not like you can run the building as a Florida LLC without having a uh, uh, authority to run a, 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 a foreign corporation in the state of New York. You can't, it's not going to be possible. How are you going to collect rent from your tenants in Trump Tower if it doesn't have authority to operate in the state of New York? So, you know, other businesses of his, it'll be a different story. You know, if he wants to run, um, you know, this new social media thing, this truth social thing, if he <laughs> wants to run that completely outside of New York. But even then, if it's going to have New York users, you have to have a New York, uh, you have to have New York authority. Uh, any company, if he wants to hit any New York consumers at all, he's going to have to have authority to operate in the state of New York. So there could be some businesses of his that don't have any connection. I mean, I guess some of the properties outside New York. So like this the is so uh, satisfying. Um, right, but, but, yeah. the but but the implications of the laws that you were talking about, right? This is the Martin Act and the and the other act are that they they could actually take away the corporate charter to do business, to yes. be, you know, chartered in New York as part yes. of the civil penalty. Is that right? That is correct. That is in That's the statute. A hit. It's a death penalty for a business. And go. the fact that, that, uh, that, that is there, I mean, they already did that in a different context. They took away the Trump's right to run a foundation or any kind of charity in the state of New York whether it's chartered here or just operating here, they do not have the privilege to do that anymore. And that's really the key is that running a business is not a right, it's a, it's a privilege. Uh, and running a charity, same thing. So, you know, it, they can take that away. Same as they could take, same, same as they take away a driver's license from someone who's a repeat DUI offender. If you're a repeat fraud offender, you should have your right to run a business in that state taken away because you just can't seem to run anything without actually defrauding people. You know, that's the implication here. That's, that's where the, the, the facts look like they might be leading. Yeah. Now, now for, for someone that's not like in the legal profession, like you both are, you know, uh, th there's a, there's a famous quote from the office by Michael Scott that says, explain this to me like a fifth grader. So like, um, um, what are all the things happening behind the scenes that, is you know that that the normal public isn't privy to and is sort of you know making things seem like they're going much slower um than than they really are because because i i mean i'll as as the liberal like my my co-host who's who's on jury duty in kenosha um he's the republican <laughs> of the group and i'm the the liberal and karina is a, a I don't want to give away your thing in case your students are watching or listening, but so, so, so like, so, 
So she's of one particular political persuasion, you know, but like, um, like those on the left want to see justice. They want to see, mm-hmm. they understand kind of the impact that Trump had. They're just like, how do people get away with this stuff? You know? Mm-hmm. So like, what are some of the things happening behind the scenes that we may, we may not know? Sure. So I think that uh, one thing is that with, uh, I'll say with the civil case is that this is not like a normal private civil lawsuit where a complaint is filed uh, before the evidence is collected in what's termed as discovery. Uh, this is more like a prosecution or more like, uh, it's kind of a weird procedural uh, thing, the way these AG cases are brought. You end up bringing it as a special proceeding uh, in New York law, and the special proceeding is expedited, and you end up effectively coming in with all of your evidence all at once. So it's kind of like you're filing a complaint with a motion for summary judgment all in one fell swoop. Uh, and you've done your investigate, you've done your discovery as uh, in, as investigation. So if, when the AG is doing its fact finding, it doesn't need to file a case and then do a bunch of d- document requests. Instead, it has broad investigatory subpoena authority. So all of that heavy lifting, and, and, on, and as anybody who knows litigation or follows it knows, it's the discovery phase that often takes the longest. Well, that's already been going on. I think that's really the key thing for people again? to know. Hot, Does it pardon? happen again? Do you go through discovery at all? Like, do no, you not when you're doing a special proceeding. Under 6312, if you, if you, once you file the special proceeding, there are some limited discovery rights. But it's uh, but generally speaking, you've already done all of that discovery work. That's the part that's been taking so darn long. Uh, and of course, it also involved uh, in the case of the uh, uh, of the Manhattan DA's office. It required two trips to the Supreme Court to uh, to actually get the documents from Trump's accounting firm, uh, and that was the Trump versus Vance case. Uh, but anyhow, all of that work is being done now. So they're preparing, from what I've heard, you know, this, this civil prosecution. When it hits, we're gonna, there's going to be a lot of facts that are going to be part of that. You know, an indictment is also very bare bones. We had the indictment in the, um, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg, the, 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 uh, the tax payments uh, wing of this case. And that's really, I think, just as I've said, it's sort of an appetizer for what's coming in that in that Manhattan DA matter, um, and it was I think what a fifteen page indictment. It was not particularly long. Sometimes you see very complex organizational indictments can be much longer than that. But indictments plead just a, enough facts to move the case forward. It's not like they're then saying like, okay, now here's Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C. That waits for trial. A, one of these special proceedings that the AG is is working on bringing. You literally do actually put in all of your evidence. You put everything in. It comes in all at once. So when we did the Trump University case, we filed it with a banker's box worth of exhibits. So <laughs> you do so all satisfying. of it. It's all in. Everything <laughs> comes in at once. So so much of the heavy lifting in this matter may look, it may look like the, the, well, what happened to the AG? Like, we don't know what's going on. It's like, no, they're doing all the work now. All the part that everybody would be upset is delaying everything later is now just upset and delaying every, and delaying everything now and making everybody upset. But it, that, that, that work is just being front loaded. When we hear something from them and they announce that they're going forward with the case, or it's going to be much further, it'll suddenly be way further along than everybody realizes. Um, now that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be going right to trial, uh, but uh, be- because there could be a motion to dismiss, that motion to dismiss could get appealed. Like things could get very messy, but um, but it's going to be a lot further along than people realize at that point. That's that's probably the biggest takeaway for people that that may not. It's something that's kind of behind the scenes that people probably don't know. I appreciate this so much because I hear people. Um who have been optimistic that no longer are. You know, they're right. like, oh, he's slippery. He always gets away. Yeah. Um, except of course, in your case, the biggest hit against the Trump organization was yours. So, you know, congratulations on that. But but so, so two follow-up questions. Um, uh, first, 
you know, I, I know now you're not on the inside of this, but you yeah. know, what would you say is a realistic expectation? Of course, not trying to, you know, um, tie you down or pin you down sure. in any way, but are we talking about like two years? Are we talking about four years? Are we talking about six months or a year? Or like you, we just have no idea. It could right. be the next decade. And then the second question is how optimistic are you? that there yeah. will be um, accountability either on the civil or criminal side out of New York? So I'll take the second part first, which is to Great. say I am cautiously optimistic that uh, that this is definitely a, uh, a, a sort of, you know, long arc bending toward justice kind of situation. Uh, I, I do believe that we're, uh, that we're, we're, I think things are going to get there, but I think it's going to take a while. Uh, so that's what I've, that's what I always tell people is that you, you can't expect this stuff to happen overnight. Uh, if I'm feeling a little bit punchy on a given day, I then note that if you do want it to happen overnight, that's called autocracy. We don't, or, or that's what the other side is, 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 is wanting to do, uh, in my view. Like, we don't want to become Russia, where you actually do just arrest somebody and charge them up with everything and then throw them in a prison in Siberia. Uh, you know, we actually want to have the process play out. I wish it were going faster. You know, due process doesn't need to be this slow. But uh, that's a different story that I won't get into right now about how I think we criminally underinvest in our law enforcement uh, and judiciary resources, but that's a different tale for another time. I think that we're going to see uh, accountability on these matters, but I do think that it could take, it could take, it, it's going to be at least another year. And I think it could be uh, more like, you know, it could be more like two, three, four years from beginning to end for when we first started the Trump University investigation to actually getting the final judgment being approved by the court and money starting to be dispersed to the victims of that scam was about six years. Mm. Now, there were some things in there that don't necessarily need to happen in every case. It could have happened in a shorter period of time. Um, you know, and that's the civil case. The criminal cases, I actually do think will probably end up moving faster uh, in the end because there's a speedy trial requirement for criminal cases, so courts favor criminal the criminal docket over the civil docket. Uh, I think that there's going to be significant, uh, there's gonna be a significant argument for expediting uh, emergency uh, hearings and emergency consideration uh, of some of these questions that are going to arise with regard to whether it's the January 6th committee in the house or uh, the New York criminal case, or the Georgia criminal case, or if there ends up being a federal criminal case. Uh, but th those matters too could take years. There could be appeals, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I also think though, that one thing I always like to point out is that there is something else out there that isn't civil or criminal, it's constitutional. And it is the 14th amendment, section three, the disqualification clause. Uh, whereby those who've sworn an oath to protect the Constitution uh, can be banned from any federal or state civil or military office of any kind if they participated in or gave aid or comfort to an insurrection. And that does not require that they were convicted of insurrection or uh, any other related federal crimes under federal law. Uh, it simply requires a majority of the House. So, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this, but it bears mentioning in this context that we, we could end up with a situation in which there are convictions, there are appeals, uh, but it is not completely done. The process, the criminal process is not completely played out, but does that mean that Donald Trump is still able to run for office again? Uh, I think then there is a third avenue here, which is constitutional, uh, but whereby that really should be called into question about whether or not he should actually have the privilege of being able to run for office again. Uh, and then that also goes for anybody else, whether in the House or staffers or anybody who swears that oath. Uh, you know, once they swear that oath to defend the Constitution and then they turn around and support an insurrection, uh, they fall under the disqualification clause, which was passed in the wake of the Civil War. 
So I, I, that's another thing to look at if we're looking at accountability. I think th I think this is great because we have um, a lawyer that's that's won a case against Trump, and we have a constitutional professor. Uh, yeah. Not me. That's Karina. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, 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 I'm curious, and may, may, maybe you guys can sort of like, you know, pair up and answer this question is like, like how, 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 how what's the mechanism to sort of like, you know, I, I don't know, apply the 14th Amendment to Trump, if, if, if at all, um, or would that just be sort of like a, I don't know, like, would that be just a byproduct of whatever the Jan January 6th commission comes up with? Um, like, is, is there a mechanism and has it ever been applied? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you first, Karina. What do you think? <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, that particular provision was, uh, you know, looking, looking in the, the wake of the civil war. And so I'm like, I think that it was applied. I just don't remember to be honest. I haven't like looked at that particular thing. The question I was going to ask was actually going back to Tristan and it's, and it's, um, yes, it's a constitutional remedy, but it's also a political remedy. That's right? true. It takes the political process. I know, um, that's and, the problem with it. I mean, that is the problem with it, right? It and is. So I actually think um, Nancy Pelosi is, um, uh, I think she's a wonderfully strategic thinker. I, I, I Surely she's been thinking about this and surely if she sure. were to act, she would need to do that before um, uh, midterms, I would, I would think, but she's probably, you know, putting in the balance. Do you, do you do that? And what does that do to this delicate, um, you know, yeah. balance that's happening right now? I don't know. Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I think that that's really, it is a very tricky thing. That is, that is of course the weakness in, in pursuing that avenue is yeah. that unless you can, in fact, even if you can get uh, some bipartisan support for those measures, you actually get Republicans to vote on banning certain people from office, it'll still be perceived as being a, a, a partisan uh, effort. Um, so it's not ideal. Um, but frankly, I, I, however, I would say the, the flip side to that is even the uh, more objective, less political, uh, you know, civil and criminal processes are still going to be perceived as political. Mm -hmm. It'll all be perceived as political. Uh, if anything happens here in New York, the first thing that everybody's going to emphasize on the other side of this is going to be that it was a Democratic AG and a Democratic DA that were the ones uh, pursuing this, even though in reality it's civil prosecutors or criminal prosecutors, career prosecutors yeah. who were following the case where it goes, and that then you had a judge or jury uh, you know, rendering the judgment. Uh, so what I do know of the, of the, of the, of the disqualification clause uh, is I, I know that it was applied after the civil war. Uh, there was also pre the disqualification clause, the house just voted to, to, to actually uh, disqualify a number of its own members uh, in the wake of secession. Uh, and then there were, I believe, a number of additional ones, uh, a number of additional bans that happened after the 14th Amendment was passed, which I want to say was in 1867. Uh, so it, it, they did do it, and I'm pretty sure that it was by a majority of the House. Uh, the, the, the provision in the Constitution is silent about the mechanism through which you do this. Um, however, the standard constitutional interpretation has been that where the Constitution is silent on that, that then it means it's a majority vote. Only by explicit provision should it be anything more than that. Uh, the disqualification clause then says that it takes a two-thirds majority to lift the ban on mm -hmm. someone. Uh, so it is possible that you could get, you know, 52 votes, in, and, and it, by the way, it, it, it there, it, it would appear maybe that it's, it would need to be both houses that would actually vote on this, not just mm. the House. Uh, mm. So I think I might have just said the House before. It would probably mm -hmm. need to be the House and the Senate. Um, but I, I'm not an expert on, on that uh, yet. Uh, I've been planning on trying to read up on it. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I've, I've done some reading on it so far, but there's certainly some folks out there that I'm sure are experts on the disqualification clause. You know, probably in the context of being experts on those reconstruction amendments. 
Yeah, and just so you know, that that would not be me. Um, <laughs> of the things that yeah. I studied, that is not one of them. Yeah. You know, though, you know, it really does strike me just listening to you um, that you know when you think of the framers and they thought of checks and balances. And well, I, you know, I'm speaking more to our general readers and not so much Tristan here. But you know, I think the framers really thought that we would have checks and balances and that power would counter power and that the power would be executive versus legislative right. versus judicial. I, I just, you know, they knew of course about factions, they wrote about factions, but I think it never crossed their minds that the fault lines would not be across the branches or between the branches, but rather across parties. Um, and so like that in my mind is just this huge problem is that, you know, yes, right in the wake of January 6th, you at least had some uh, members of the House and Senate decrying right. this and saying like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like we've, we've gone too far. Finally, he's gone too far. It's like, yes. oh, that's the red line. Oh, thanks for that one. You yeah. know, but even those now are like, even, yeah, everybody backtracked. They're all back. Right? They all backtracked. Except for a few. And um, and so, you know, just listening to you, and I I wonder, this is why actually I asked about the optimism, is because yeah. I feel like at some point the poison is just like it's everywhere. Yeah, it it's, is. It's it's just it's like I, I feel like the part of this is it takes so long because as soon as you start investigating one thing. You're like, oh gosh, and it's in this, and it's in that, yeah. and it's just, it, you know, it's just the tentacles reach so far. And I guess I just wondered, did you have that sense when you were running the um, investigation of the Trump Organization and Trump University that it's like, oh my gosh, where does this end? It's not discreet, or or are you more optimistic even knowing that? Um, you know, at that point with that case, you know, we we had a pretty limited mandate to be pursuing the people who had been defrauded by Trump University. Uh, we did sue the Trump and we investigated and sued the Trump organization as part of that matter because they were effectively the parent company of Trump University. Trump University had gone under before our case even started. And so there was no money left to get at in that entity anymore. So we we'd sued successfully uh, the Trump Organization and Donald Trump personally because we wanted to uh, find someone who would be liable uh, and that would actually pay. And we actually did get a really, really good court decision before our matter ended up resolving that held uh, at the, uh, by a judge here in New York that they, that uh, basically holding that, that there, it, it was looking good that they were going to be able to hold uh, the Trump Organization, Donald Trump liable. But anyway, we, we didn't really get into where the rest of this goes. Uh, you know, and that was those were early days. That was, you know, we were doing our investigation starting in 2011, 2012. We filed our case in 2013. Um, and we were really focused on the Trump University thing. So, you know, the things we're seeing now where uh, there were, in my view, so many different angles to how, uh, just if we just take the run up to January 6th, all of the different things that were done during that time to try to stop the transfer of power from happening, to try to overturn the election. Um, there were many, many, many of them. And then you're ending up with these sort of secondary and tertiary litigation matters where now we're all sitting here wondering whether or not DOJ is actually going to indict Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. And that issue about Congress's subpoena power and its ability for that to then result in criminal sanctions is now going to probably get litigated because even if they do the indictment, it's immediately going to end up in court proceedings. Uh, and it may be quite a long time, even if DOJ steps up, as I hope they do, uh, because it's it, it's just ridiculous to say that the House doesn't have the ability to back up a subpoena with, with, with some kind of uh, uh, compulsion. You know, the term subpoena comes from the Latin sub poena, which means under penalty. So if there is no penalty, it wasn't a subpoena. It was just a suggestion. You know, oh, maybe you might want to show up at the house, you know, next <laughs> Friday. 
Mr. Bannon. No, it's like you need to show up or you're actually going to be held in contempt the same way that you would if this were a court setting. Um, But at any rate, now we're going to have a whole... We're gonna have a whole we, we're gonna have a whole litigation about that. We're gonna have a whole set of litigation around whether or not Trump has executive privilege to stop the production of these documents that were generated by his time in the White House. Um, and, and so, yeah, we end up with all of these other things. Then there's the Georgia matter. Uh, the New York stuff is separate, really, because it has to do with the running of his private business. Um, but yet, you know, but yet there are some places where some of these things could be related. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very very it's a very very messy situation. I do have a lot of like cautious long view optimism, but I believe that it is going to be a very bumpy ride. I think that we have a lot of pretty dark days ahead of us. I also hope that we are going to have some brighter ones coming. But that's you know that's uh, that that's where I stand on that. Yeah. Does does the Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go, go ahead. No, no, you. Oh, does the does the enforcement or lack of enforcement of the subpoena on Steve Bannon give you um, pause in your optimism with like the new rounds of subpoenas they issued, like to Michael Flynn and Kaylee McEnany? <laughs> in, like, in yeah, the whole, uh, I think that I think the issue there is I think it's possible that the committee has some kind of back channel with DOJ and knows that DOJ is in fact about to uh, push Bannon through the pipeline to actually indict him. Um, Or it could be that the committee is kind of trying to force this more uh, on DOJ, that DOJ may need to awaken to the realization, I just tweeted about this, that the DOJ doesn't just have a Steve Bannon problem, it has a Trump loyalist problem, and that none of these people are going to voluntarily show up. And, then, and some of them have. Uh, but then, but if you combine Bannon's defiance with, uh, I think it's a separate case, Jeffrey Clark's taking the fifth and basically, ref- she, she, he showed up, but then he refused to say anything. Um, I think it's a different situation, but if but we don't we don't we're not going to yet know why Clark did that. I have a thought that I'll share. But if you take Bannon and Clark together, it basically provides a lot of fuel for these other people to say, "Well, I'm not going to say a thing. I'm not even going to show up. I'm just going to I'm I'm going to just ignore it." And uh, and basically, if 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 basically there's been one that's been that's been you know queued up for DOJ. DOJ may be able to take the position of being like, well, we really, you know, it's just this one witness who's being difficult. We're not really, we're just going to decline to pursue it. But if they've got 10, maybe that's going to force the issue. Does it dent my optimism? I mean, a little, um, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly wild about, I've been very, very torn, and I've said this a lot, very torn on exactly what the heck is going on at DOJ. There's a part of me that feels like the, 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 the fundamental problem here is that a successful prosecution and a non-existent prosecution often look the same from the outside. Uh, because a successful prosecution should be in stealth mode and you should not know it's coming. Uh, whereas a non-existent prosecution would be a non-existent prosecution. So, or to put it differently, is Merrick Garland literally not doing anything? Or is he just, does he have a really good poker face? <laughs> and I think he might. I well, think that the whole sort of like very sort of oh very pleasant sort of bland <laughs> exterior that he presents with everything just you know uh, he seems ve- he's very judicial very you know very like just sort of you know sort of above some of all of this and he refuses to make statements on anything and he's very calm and measured in how he does everything you can t- he, he approaches every press conference like he's getting nominated for his judgeship again. He's going to say nothing. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. And that frustrates people because yeah. they want an AG to come in there and be like, we're going to yeah. go get him or be yeah. tough on crime. And it's like, that's not Valley. Merrick Garland. Yeah. And it may yeah. be that it's actually kind of a sneaky genius that he's actually just rope-a-doping everybody into thinking that like, I'm not really going to do anything. Yeah, I, think, I think that's well, what it is. We'll that's for the prosecutors to determine. It's not for me to determine. It's not. And that he's basically just managing to fool everybody. I don't know. I will tell you this. I hope you're right. Um, yeah. I, I, I really hope you're right. I, I do think that the you know, subpoena issue with Bannon 
I mean, that's that's going to have huge precedential effects huge. that will huge. ripple on for decades. You know, the I, House will never be able to do another pro- will, uh, investigation exactly. ever again, that's or exactly the Senate. Right. It'll that's be exactly over. Right. That the, the it, it has been yeah. some of the more important uh, proceedings that have ever occurred in Washington sprung out of congressional investigations, yeah. including Watergate. It, you know, exactly. uh, but yeah. also, you know, uh, in, you know and, and things that are not exactly now viewed as being particularly wonderful moments in our history, like, uh, you know, the, uh, the original McCarthy, <laughs> not our current iteration, yeah. but, uh, but Joe McCarthy, but the, the army McCarthy hearings, you know, that was obviously, that was, it was a really pivotal moment in American history, ended up really finally by the way, I'll say one quick thing is that I do believe that there is a school of thought among a lot of uh, sort of Washington, D.C. Democrats that I really believe that a lot of them are sitting there thinking, and it's what I'm worried Garland is doing, that they just think that if they wait long enough, it'll be like McCarthyism and it'll just the fever will break and suddenly everybody will stop listening to the demagogue. And I worry that that isn't going to happen this time uh, and that people are that it's too, they were too far gone. And that we're that people are not going to stop listening to the demagogue. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's you, you, you were going to say something about Jeffrey Clark about what, what oh, makes him different. So Jeffrey Clark, why that might be a different scenario is because, um, as, as other folks abler than I have have have, have said online and elsewhere, uh, that the key there is that Clark may be preserving his testimony so that he can cooperate as a witness with uh, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. DOJ inspector general's investigation, mm-hmm. which it is clear now, if we read the tea leaves, that DOJ IG is, it looks like, investigating the Jeffrey Clark, Jeffrey Rosen, Richard Donahue, Trump situation, or as I like to refer to it, the sort of the DOJ wing of the conspiracy and coup. Um, but it's, uh, you know, Clark, it's very tough to look at Clark's situation and the evidence at hand and the testimony that we know occurred from Rosen and Donahue and not think that Clark is headed to prison if he doesn't find a way to cooperate. So it was probably in his interest to preserve his optionality by not saying anything to Congress because otherwise it could create inconsistent statements that could be used to trip him up uh, later on, uh, you know, if he's then testifying as a witness in a criminal case for some other, uh, for some other defendant, the best thing to do in that situation is to say as little as possible to any other authority uh, and make sure that you're just routing all of your facts and testimonies through the folks you're cooperating with. Um, we don't know that he's cooperating. But what he did by not testifying preserved his maximum ability to cooperate. Uh, And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Clark. I think he's a different case than somebody like Bannon. Tristan, do you know if he's got, uh, I mean, does he have a, a, I want to say, does he have a good defense attorney? Because I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, that's very strategic. A really good criminal defense attorney would tell you that. Um, Or does he have Rudy Giuliani? Like, does he have some of the uh, Trump lawyers that um, were not? I think I want to say some, I want to say that I read that he has, that he did get a new lawyer right before he went to the house. I think that his new lawyer might have also had some role in representing Sidney Powell. So that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily equal, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're talking about there. But then again, I don't really know. Um, yeah, that's that's something I actually okay. don't know. But I, that okay. from from the folks I know who I, I I talk to a good bit, or you know that I that I end up you know we you know tweet back and forth and reply to each other's stuff online. That are that are former criminal prosecutors. The the word that I heard was that you know Clark's move was potentially you know very strategic. Uh, and that is yeah. less about defiance and more about saving his skin. Yeah, I can see that. I, yeah. I will say that um, listening to all of this, I'm reminded in in my world um, in, in the, on the con law side of the house, um, we've been talking about Trump as 
a one man constitutional wrecking ball. Yes. That is our, like, that is what we say. And we've been saying it for years, but it's like, how much damage can one yes. person do? And, yes. you know, it turns out a, a whole lot. And it turns out that a lot of our rules um, were more norms. And yep. for somebody who doesn't care about norms, like, well, there you go. But yep. one man constitutional wrecking ball. Yes. And I think that part of it, back to your point earlier about uh, the Constitution not really being designed with faction in mind necessarily, or, or or what has turned into parties in mind, you know, they, I I I think that part of it, kind of from a historical perspective, is I I think that they didn't realize what the presidency would turn into, or they didn't kind of factor that in with the faction problem, uh, where you would then have the president's party be so aligned that it would then just sort of like completely uh bring a uh section of the legislature with it uh whereas historically uh in you know, I, I my speculation there at any rate is that the is that the founders thought that faction from the english context had to do with sort of court versus parliament and that if you didn't have a king your faction problem would not be as severe i don't think they realized the degree to which the presidency would become more uh, imperial. And I think they definitely, yeah, I think some of them were probably sitting around fearing, uh, put it this way, what we're facing is something that many of them were certainly worried about and they, they did the best they could at the time, you know, yeah. and this is, but what we're facing right now is exactly what they were afraid of. They were afraid of the, uh, they were afraid of the faithless demagogue that would be yeah, in it for were. himself. And that would, uh, and that would, and that would rally people behind him uh, with a with with faux populism, uh, in but ultimately be in the name of his own ambition. Uh, and of course, they were all big classical uh, nerds, uh, and thereby they were thinking of the Catiline conspiracies from the Roman Republic days. Uh, but that's what they were looking at. And then they did get a. Uh, a small micro instance of what that would look like in Aaron Burr. Uh, Burr didn't, you know, Burr was 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 a drop in the bucket compared to what we're facing now. Uh, we should be so lucky as to have Aaron Burr back. He was, uh, you know, he only killed Hamilton. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't manage to actually overthrow the entire government. He thought about it, and then he was like, "Nah." Apropos, apropos your point, did you see the that the district court's ruling, uh, the opinion? specifically said something to the fact of like presidents are not kings yes I yeah mean, i mean like, like it's it, it's it, it, we we kind of need to remind ourselves about this i mean it's, <laughs> once you've got that uh you know put it this way executive privilege is not a royal prerogative those are not the same thing and you can't have this kind of immunity from accountability or immunity from justice that would accrue to a member of a royal family uh, in, you know, in sort of pre-1800 England or France or something like that. You can't do that. Um, it's not the same thing. So it doesn't just attach to him forever. Uh, you know, yes, he gets Secret Service protection. He gets a library named after him, but he's got to raise the money himself. Uh, by the way, I don't, I haven't seen anything about there being a Donald Trump library. Has anyone ever heard about that? About him. Plenty of books. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't see, I, a library is not really on what? brand for him, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, so at any rate, I have not heard a lick about there being a Donald Trump presidential library. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, you get a library named after you. Um, you get a pension. Um, that's about it. Like there's there, there's certain things. You, and I think he gets a very he gets a very large travel allowance, um, which yeah. he hasn't bothered to use. It's not like he's running around doing good faith visits around the world to promote world peace and, and a champion some cause. You know, he's not being Jimmy Carter. Uh, he's not being, uh, he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not putting that to any use. He's only been using, he, he probably has been using his travel budget just to go back and forth among his own properties. Because so I think he's- question for you. This is a yeah. little bit to the side, but something that, um, you know, thinking about the Trump University prosecution and, and, and all of that uh, and your work makes me think about, and that is, you know, Donald Trump, when I listen to him, I'm like, you're just not that smart. Um, so how is it, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm 
by the way, today's Veterans Day. So I'll just say, you know, happy Veterans Day to Will. I'm also a veteran. And um, my uh, command sergeant major once told me, and I asked him, he's the best leader I served under. And I said, you know, what is it? What is the key to successful leadership? And he said, surround yourself with good people. That was rule number mm -hmm. one. And mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, is it Donald Trump that he is the mastermind and maybe he's not that smart, but he has a great instinct for things or does he just surround himself with good slash bad people? Like it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both. I think he's way savvier. I wouldn't say smart. I'd say savvier. I think you use the right word. I can also, get that. Instincts. I think his instincts and his savvy, uh, for a, a certain type of self-promotion are unfortunately off the charts. And, uh, and I think he's very good at, at gathering publicity to himself. He always has been, that's his superpower. Um, and I think, he's, I think he's actually planned a lot more of this than we realize. Uh, and however, I do think that he, you know, he, he has had a cadre of other people around him and we see it with who was involved with the planning of January 6th, who was at these war rooms that we now know existed at the Willard Hotel and a couple of nights beforehand. Um, and, you know, and everybody who you would expect to be there in, in this sort of like, you know, uh, you know, rogues den or sort of nest of villains there over at the Willard Hotel, they were all there. Uh, Roger Stone, uh, Alex Jones, who I actually wouldn't have figured would be there. I, you know, I think I thought he was too busy hawking, you know, sugar pills that claim to reduce your uh, or uh, produce testosterone. Um, but then, uh, you know, Giuliani, you know, John Eastman, who, mm -hmm. you know, should have known better, uh, mm -hmm. but didn't. And uh, there are too many of these people that should that that should have known better, and were too tempted by the proximity to power. It was an opportunity for them to rise above whatever station they were at. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody who was, you know, somebody like Rudy saw it as a chance for him to have a second act in public life to work with Trump. A lot of other people, but the thing is like, even the people that ended up not joining the, the Trump inner circle, it wasn't because they didn't try, it's because they were rejected. You know, Chris mm -hmm. Christie was kicked out of the Trump inner circle. Mitt mm -hmm. Romney was kicked out of the Trump inner circle. Uh, so, you know, these uh, un unfortunately, ambition is is a, is a really awful thing much of the time. And these folks that really should have known better uh, really kind of were, were tempted by the chance to be, you know, right there at the foot of the king. And mm -hmm. uh, and 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 so I he has managed to collect this sort of rogues gallery of, uh, of people who either, you know, were ambitious to rise above whatever their station was within the, the sort of legal or political or ac academic sphere, or in the case of some people like Giuliani or Stone, you know, folks who uh, had kind of washed up a bit, but then were gonna be using this to try to get back into the, back to the center of power. You know, and uh, and then there were some younger ones who you who who I don't know if you know somebody like um somebody like a Stephen Miller would have always been too fringe to have made to have been a major power player in any other Republican administration. Um, you know, say what you will about George W. Bush, but he didn't surround himself with people like Stephen Miller um, or Bannon and, or Bannon. You know, these were people who, uh, or Manafort, uh, yeah. these were people who had kind of washed out of a lot of Republican and conservative politics or never really made it in the first place or wouldn't have made it in the first place. You know, these are folks who, who've been seen an opportunity. Um, there's, uh, oh shoot, I'm about to botch the, I'm about to forget this person's name, but um do you know the book Twilight of Democracy and, yeah. and who I'm referring to there? I'm, I'm trying to remember her name now. I'm going to blank mm -hmm. on her name. Um, but the, the author of Twilight for Democracy, uh, which, which was a great book written by a uh, 
a longtime conservative movement fixture who then was writing about how these right wing movements and oh, yeah, Applebaum, oh, Applebaum, right. yes, Applebaum wrote wonderfully thing. about this mm -hmm. in Twilight uh, in Twilight of Democracy, uh, but it's all about how uh, these 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 sort of alt right movements in various countries, both here mm -hmm. and abroad. Uh, have managed to sort of eat conservatism from within and kill it and 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 sort of d divert it, uh, and she talks about it in more of the context of Poland, which she's very familiar with and right. has lived in for many many years. That it was sort of the, the these sort of like second and third rate opportunists showed up, people who would never have made it in regular party politics managed to flock to this banner of this of this new person who was coming in. Uh, building kind of this demagogic movement because it was an opportunity for them to actually move up um, by, 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 by basically attaching themselves to this demagogue whose power was rising. And I do believe that that's part of what happens. So you get some of the has-beens and then some of the never probably would have beens uh, all sort of joined up with, uh, with Trump. And yeah, so he's got this group of people that were, um, that were, that were advising him but I also do believe that at the end of the day, he really keeps his own counsel. He doesn't actually, he's not one of these people that sort of will do whatever the last person to, you know, he talked to told him to do. I really think he's somebody that actually ends up making a lot of these decisions himself. Yeah. I don't want to call him a mastermind because I think that gives him a little bit too much credit, but I do believe that he is truly the center of all of this that has happened. I don't think that it's somehow like Steve Bannon's the mastermind and Donald Trump's just the puppet. No, 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 no. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. You say that about January 6th. What about the Trump organization? What about, um, you know, Weiselberg? Like, what about, what about that? Oh, I think it's Trump all the way. I think Weiselberg okay. is, is, is simply the right hand. Okay. That I, I, I've always, that, that everything that we investigated, researched, heard about, and everything that I've seen since then points to that. Uh, there isn't a single thing that happened in that organization, in that business without Donald Trump approving it. Um, yeah. And, you know, he trusted Allen to do certain things uh, without him. And there are very few people that he trusted that much to let, let Allen run a lot of the day-to-day -day nuts and bolts. But any kind of larger decisions, especially around costs, anything to do with marketing, anything to do with strategy, the go-no-go no go decisions about how businesses were to be run, that ultimately was, was Trump. Weisselberg was the sort of like day-to-day -day operator and sometimes was delegated the role of being the hammer. Um, but I don't believe that there was much of anything that happened there that didn't happen with Donald Trump's seal of approval, uh, not for one second. Uh, and 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 then and then outside of him and Weisselberg, almost nobody ever had any kind of uh, real power there to do much without Trump actually being the one to drive it. Mm. Um, Ivanka was starting to become that person. Mm. Um, now, now it's different today, but today's not really quite what's at issue. It's about the things that happened in the past. I think today, increasingly, it sounds like from all accounts that Don Jr. is really the one starting to take over. Um, but I, but it's still, I think a lot of it is still Alan. I think Alan's really the one who's actually really keeping the thing afloat. Um, so, you know, and yeah, that, that's, that's what I would say there, but there are very, very, very few people, uh, that were at the middle of that. The entire Trump organization executive office is really, was at any given time was really only about a dozen people. Wow. You know, they, they, you know, that Matt, this Matthew Calamari, you know, ended up being chief operating officer, but, you know, his position before that had been head of security. But I think that really a COO in most organizations would have a lot more role with actually operating the businesses. I feel like Calamari was probably mm -hmm. there to run really more operations. I think his role was really more operational and administrative. Um, Weisselberg was really both the COO and the CFO of, of, of Trump org. Um, and, and still is. I think even though he's been stripped of some of his uh, corporate titles, uh, you know, I, I don't, there's nothing that suggests that he isn't still working there and, and, and actually running a lot of what's going on. Um, but I think it's increasingly then Don Jr. rather than Donald Trump. Whereas prior to the presidency, 
the Donald Trump, uh, Donald Jr.'s role and Eric's role, I, 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 they might have had knowledge of a lot of these things. I think they probably had knowledge of how they themselves were compensated, but were they actually the ones running anything? I don't know about that. I think they were given certain properties to run, but they then might have had plenty of knowledge about tax and proprieties with regard to the properties that they did in fact run. So they're not in the clear, but at the end of the day, I think that the central, that the, it was very centralized. With, with, with Donald Trump Sr. and then Alan Weisberg. Well, I know you're gonna close this up. I know you're gonna say we're about out of time. I just have one little quick question. Um, and this is actually for my um, corporate law colleague um, uh, who's a corporate law nerd. Did you pierce the corporate veil with the uh, Trump University suit? So we- Was that personal liability? Uh, if memory serves what we got in that, case was a, uh, I believe what we got was that their motion to dismiss Donald Trump and the Trump organization was denied. Now, that doesn't mean that we were necessarily going to win, okay. uh, but given okay. that we had already, as, as I said earlier, we'd done this special proceeding and we already had put all of our evidence in, uh, the failure of their motion to dismiss probably gave a pretty good sign as to okay. where the judge would have headed with regard to it would it would have been a bench trial if we okay. had actually uh if that had actually continued all the way to trial um so we don't so no jury so i think that her denial of their motion to dismiss gave a pretty good clue and and the language that she used in her decision made it clear that she really had a pretty strong view that they were going to be implicated uh, we had taken a lot of effort to show that the corporate bail should be pierced in that situation. Um, and just That's to unpack Jessica that. Jessica Erickson. That just, was my question. Just for to Jessica unpack Erickson, that. had to do the shout out. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, just, just to be, just to unpack that just a smidgen, you know, the, the, the key there is that like you had Trump University LLC, shouldn't it be the only entity that would have been liable for Trump University's misdeeds? Well, you can quote unquote pierce the corporate veil and go, uh, go after some of the other uh, holders behind that LLC, namely Donald Trump was like the 90 some percent owner. He uses Trump uh, and then he uses Trump organization as effectively kind of an operating and holding entity. So we sued both of them and basically said they are liable because they were operating the, the law, at least in New York, is that if you operate some other subsidiary company or company that you own as effectively an alter ego of, of you or from the cor sort of corporate context, if it's operated, if you have too much of a hands-on role on that subsidiary to the point that it is kind of a mere division of your larger empire, then the courts will treat it as such. They won't treat it as a separate entity. They'll treat it as just an arm of the parent company. And that's what we were arguing. And it looked like we were on our way to uh, succeeding at getting that um, because, and this actually ties back into Weisselberg. So it's a little bit relevant here and just kind of the, the context of how that organization is run Weisselberg managed every single penny that went into and out of Trump, Trump University and all of the other Trump businesses, as far as we could tell. Uh, he signed all of their checks. They didn't do any wires. Uh, all payments had to come from him. Uh, all of their books were reviewed in person at Trump Tower by Alan Weisselberg quarterly. So the fact that Trump University had its own controller, its own you know, sort of mini CFO was somewhat irrelevant. That person reported directly to Weisselberg and to Jeff McConney, who is the controller of Trump Organization, who we believe is cooperating at least somewhat with the Manhattan DA's office and has testified before the grand jury uh, in the current tax fraud case before the, man, uh, with the Manhattan DA's office is, is, is bringing uh, or appears to be bringing. So, uh, we were able, and, and we were able to show that Donald Trump himself had signed off on every piece of mail, every uh, newspaper advertisement, every magazine advertisement, every radio spot, and had uh, signed off on and personally appeared in 
the welcome video that was shown to all prospective customers of Trump University when they showed up at kind of the free preview session and got suckered into spending a bunch of money on a sham uh, school that uh, that did not actually teach anybody how to invest in real estate. So, uh, so we were able to show a lot of direct involvement by him personally, in addition to direct control and involvement by Trump uh, by the Trump organization. Wow, that's <laughs> I swear I could probably like like listen to you just talk more about this for indefinitely. So, um, hopefully, we've created an environment where you you'd want to come back, especially kind of as some of the New York stuff unfolds. We'd love to have you back. I, I, I'm, like, I'm happy to come back. Yeah, there's there's a lot more coming. Clearly, I I, I can't make any guarantees on when. Um, I always have to answer a lot of very upset and frustrated folks on my Twitter. Uh, I try to do my best. They can't yell at Merrick Garland, so they yell at me. Yeah, um, so they can't, you know, or, or or Tish James is responding to their tweets, and, and, uh, and that, now they'll have Alvin Bragg to kick around. That's true. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, he'll, he, you know, uh, he'll be he'll be seeing his threads filled with a bunch of uh, abuse from both sides. Like they'll have all of the people on the Democratic side saying why is this taking so long, and all the people on the Republican side saying it's a witch hunt. Um, but that's going to be fun for him. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, but he'll, he, he's, uh, I believe he's going to be up to the job. Uh, you know, he's, a he's a longtime prosecutor and, a and, a and, and, and really a, a pro mm -hmm. he's a pro. Yeah. So I, I think he's going to be up to the task, but yeah, there's a lot coming there and I'm happy to come back. And next time I'll even fix my lighting and, and sound and everything as it's gotten darker outside yeah. my yeah. light, I, I, my light has gone. The, the stupid, earlier sunsets now you can't even it's true you know like like we 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 spoke with uh harry dunn uh two weeks ago yeah. and, and and it's it was funny like like we we talked to him it's kind of light out but then like by the end of the interview it's just like the light up from his monitor was, was yeah like... yeah it was the only thing left yeah i was trying to figure out can i reach for some other lighting source here while i'm still on without interrupting the flow but it's fine yeah you're you're Fight. Yeah. Well, if, if if anybody wants to uh, um, you know argue with you on Twitter, um, you could reach uh, Tristan at, at Tristan Snell. Um, yeah. So hopefully uh, you'll get some more followers that way. And uh, and yeah, just just thanks again, Tristan. That was that was awesome. I really appreciate your input. And thanks for allowing me to to join. I I hope I didn't ask too many questions, but Will, thank you so much for inviting me mm -hmm. to join I'm, you on I'm this a... one. It was really fun. Uh, as a lawyer, there's, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a litigator. There's no such thing as too many questions. So I'm always happy. I'm always happy. I'm happy to ask them and I'm happy to answer them. That's what we do. So it was really fun. Yeah. Thank, thank you thank so much, you. Tristan. I really enjoyed this. And uh, we, will, uh, we will catch our listeners, viewers next time. Thanks so much, guys. Thank, thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.